Good morning. Good morning. It is wonderful to be here today, to be with all of you. Um, I said this the last opportunity I had to preach, but you know, you um, you can be concerned about what you'll say, what will be taught about will the truth be proclaimed, will will Christ be exalted? And if you've been here, we've already been through all that. It's it's so awesome and so amazing to hear the truths of God, the doctrines that we hold to scripture um, right there, plain as day for us to read and understand. It's not something new. It's not something different. You're not, you're not here to hear something, uh, a message from anyone except Christ. Amen. Uh, thankful for the body. I'm thankful Pastor Brent for the Sunday school service this morning. Very often we hear prepare your hearts. And my heart is not prepared when I leave home in the morning and you're juggling the family and you're juggling getting on the roads and you, know, you, you get here, there's, there's things to be done, but you sit and you sing some hymns and you hear some prayers from the saints about the saints. This is how your heart will be prepared. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Most gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the Christian Sabbath, for the Lord's Day. We thank you that you are holy and just and, and righteous and, and merciful. Lord, I, I pray that we come to you today with, with open hands where we we lay down our pride and we lay down our sinfulness where we ask you for help. We ask your spirit, the comforter, to be with us. We're thankful for your word, the revelation of who you are. We're thankful for the body. And we ask again that the worldly distractions be set aside for a time and that we do something so simple yet so profound which is to hear your word and to proclaim it and God we ask that you grant us an overwhelming abundance of grace that we believe it Be with us now. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So a few months ago, I was able to attend uh, an association meeting uh, with uh, our pastors here, with some friends, uh, the churches within the state of Texas uh, that get together. And I was able to participate in the prayers for other churches. Uh, pastors, congregation members, and their families. And while one man was praying, he stated within that prayer that we are great sinners. And the term struck me. We 
are great sinners. What he meant was that we are great sinners in the terms of our depravity, in the fact that even we don't understand the breadth and the depth of our sin. How often do you meditate about the sins you've committed unknowingly? It is a very good practice to sit in silence while in prayer and ask God to bring to your mind your sin that you may not have thought twice about. There are sins of commission when we do things we should not do, and sins of omission when we fail to do the things that we should. We have sinned much more than we know, much more than we have ever even considered. In the book of Matthew, Christ tells us, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And again, the words of Christ, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Even our thoughts can be sinful and become something we need to repent of. We are great sinners. But then I thought about why this term, great sinners, struck me. In the world, in the not too distant past, being a great sinner meant having a story to tell. You would get together and sit around and tell your friends about experiences over the past week, over the past weekend, the things you said, the actions you participated in, the very things we are warned about in Scripture over and over again. Again from Matthew, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. People brag about their sin. I have bragged about my sin. How terrible is it that sometimes we look at our past, it comes up in conversation, a story, and we believe it to be humorous. We tell what we may consider to be a funny story about a time in our life, perhaps before we were saved, or even after, and we didn't know better. The worldly side of us thinks that we just have a good story to tell. I wish I was more brokenhearted about the sinful stories I've been able to tell that ended with laughter for those who could hear. The unbeliever in this world thinks of these things as just life. This is how we pass the time in this world. The unbeliever is not convicted of those sins. And Christian, a lack of conviction about our own sinful nature, whether in the past or in the present, is something that we don't want to have in common with the lost. It was sinful when we participated in the action in the first place. And it's sinful now to live in it as we tell the story, as if it's something to be proud of. We should not get an experience of joy while telling others about who we were when we were lost. We are 
greats and sinners. We will be in the letter of Paul to the Romans this morning. Our focus text will be Romans 6, 1-14, what we, we can refer to as a how then shall we live type of passage. It speaks to us about obedience in light of who Christ is and what God has done. But before we get there, I want to build up to this chapter by visiting passages from the first five chapters of Romans. The good news of Jesus Christ is more than facts to be believed. It is also a life to be lived. I want us to go into this text with a clearer understanding of why we should be concerned, convicted, and moved to change our habits and our way of thinking in light of the passage. So, before we get to Romans 6, let's turn to Romans 1 and get some context that will help us when we get to our focus text in Romans 6, when Paul asks the question, what shall we say then? So if you would, please turn to me to Romans 1. In Romans 1, we see the great sinfulness of man, which deserves condemnation. We see that same sinful man deserves punishment. He deserves God's wrath. He deserves God's justice. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, the list doesn't end, does it? Inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. In chapter 2, we see a glimpse of God's judgment. Verses 1 through 5. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In chapter 3, 
we see how we can be justified in the sight of God so that the punishment for sin, the wrath of God, will not fall on us. We see mercy. Beginning in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And in Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4 makes sure to set us straight before we believe that we can be good enough to be counted as righteous. Before we think that we can add to God's grace. Before we can think we can add to Christ's righteousness by works and good deeds. Somehow trying to earn our way out of our sin debt. This passage reinforces what we just read. That his grace is a gift. And that it is our faith in the truth of scripture. Our faith that God is who he says he is. It is our faith in Christ Jesus that is counted to us as righteousness. So in Romans 4, starting in verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness, apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? We can rephrase this question. Is this blessing then only for the one who works? Abraham was counted righteous because of his faith in the promise of God before he was circumcised. Before he had done works, Abraham did not have to work to earn salvation, and neither do we. His righteousness, Christ's righteousness, is our righteousness. And in Romans chapter 5, we have assurance. We have assurance that our old selves are no longer viewed as those who are far off, who are not judged because of our sins, but judged on behalf of what Christ has done. The glorious gift of salvation. We have been redeemed. We have been set apart. We have been made saints, heirs with Christ. He is our elder brother. We are as much in him as he is one with the Father. This is the doctrine of adoption where we have been brought in. We belong to him. We have been purchased. We are no longer our own. Um, 
before my reading in Romans 5, in the back of your hymnal we have a confession. And I'd like for you to see this with me as I read it. Uh, toward the very back of your hymnal, hymnal uh, page 677. That's not hymn 677. Don't go looking at those numbers. You have to have the page number on the bottom. <clears throat> page 677 has chapter 12 of adoption. All those that are justified, God vouchsafed in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. Have his name put upon them. Receive the spirit of adoption. Have access to the throne of grace with boldness. Are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for and chastened by him as by a father yet never cast off but sealed sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation what a wonderful doctrine that we get to see in the passages of scripture so our reading in Romans 5 begins in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So what are we to understand so far from being guilty of sin, from our fall with Adam, to being guilty of the sins we ourselves have committed? We stand without excuse in front of a thrice holy God who will by no means clear the guilty except for the fact that he made a way to redeem. In sending Christ, who took on flesh, and in doing so, shared in our humanity under the law, Christ then kept the law perfectly and was then crucified. I was smiling so big earlier today doing these readings because we read from Isaiah 53. I'm going there again right now. Isaiah 53, uh, verses 10 through 12. <clears throat> Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Spotless, sinless, perfect. Behold the Lamb of God, takes away the sins of the world. Still in chapter 5, reading from verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one Man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all of this leads us into Romans 6. The how then shall we live text. Where we see obedience in the light of who Christ is and what God has done. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin, still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments 
for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means is the response of the Apostle Paul. We just read a warning out of chapter 2. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Christian, how often do you presume upon the grace of God just so that you can continue in your sin we lie to ourselves we rationalize that we are not as bad as others and that God probably only counts the big stuff right and most likely you are not sinning by accident you choose it. I choose it. We choose to satisfy our own lusts, our own desires. We choose it over our Creator. We choose it over the one who created us, who sustains us, who blesses your day by meeting your needs. You choose your sin over your Savior, who lived and died so that you may have eternal life. You choose to sin. Christian, this, this must not be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The question isn't, how can we who died still sin? No, the question posed to us by the apostle is, how can we still live in it? When we consider how a way has been made, when we consider what God has done, what Christ has done, why do you return to it? Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Proverbs 26 11. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you not know? Yes, you know. If you're a believer, it's why we're here, right? We know who Christ Jesus is. No one has that question when they walk in here. Some are believers. Some are truly repentant. Others are hearsay and want to look for more. But the question in verse 3 is, do you not know? And it's, yes. If you've been baptized in obedience with our Lord and Savior's command, then you should know. When the spiritual act of justification, <clears throat> when the spiritual act of justification was affected to you, to your soul, to your heart and mind, that day you understood that you are now united with him. You are united with Christ so that you too, we too, might walk in newness of life. Verse 
Verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. United with him in death. United with him in a new life. In a resurrection like his. Verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our old self was crucified. Our old self is dead. For one who has died has been set free from sin. This is the crux of the matter. For Christ has died. He had taken on sin. He was buried in the tomb, but he rose victorious over sin, victorious over death. Christ has that victory, and now he lives, reigning and ruling, even now. And Christian, these verses 5, 6, and 7 tell us, if you have died, if that old man was crucified, if you have been united with Christ, then you also have been set free from sin. You are no longer dead in sin, but you are alive in Christ. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. John 8, 36. Romans 5, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Read verse 11 again. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What is the relationship with Christ and sin? It's dead. What is the relationship with you and Christ? Each one of you has to answer that for yourself. But I can tell you that if you are in Christ and Christ's relationship with sin is dead, then that means your relationship with sin should be dead as well. You're in him. Why should we be concerned with sin? I got three reasons. There's plenty more. But I got three. <clears throat> First, it separates us from God. When Adam sinned, he hid himself from God. He felt shame. The closeness of the relationship that was there before was now tainted, severed. A great chasm, like the one we read about in the rich man and Lazarus, and Lazarus was put between man and God when Adam chose to sin. When we as people wrong someone, or have been wronged by someone, we find it hard to speak to that person again. All of us at one point or another have felt the strain and separation on a relationship with a close friend or loved one. Don't repeat the actions that separate you from those you love. 
and don't repeat the actions that separate you from God. Second, we are made in the image of God. From Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. When we think about our children, we have certain expectations of them. How they should behave, how they should speak, what words they should say or not say. How they are to present themselves around others. Even the nature of their character when they are on their own. We want them to represent us, to, to represent who we are and what we believe. Christian, how much more does your Heavenly Father expect of you as His image bearer? You have been made in His likeness. And just as an earthly parent has an expectation of how their children should behave, your Heavenly Father has expectations of you. You have been adopted. You, being in Christ, are in the fold of God. We said this earlier, but it bears repeating. We are as much in Him as He is one with the Father. You represent your Heavenly Father here on earth. Is your father a liar? Is he a thief? Do not represent him as if he was. Our kids, when they do something wrong, sometimes it breaks our heart. And kids, don't hear me picking on you because the, all the adults in the room at one time were children too. And I'm sure that their mom and dad shed tears over them and their actions or their words as well. There's a love there that hurts. This relationship, fathers and sons. It should break our hearts to grieve the Holy Spirit. Third, what is our calling? Many of us are concerned with our calling, what God has called us to do. Who are we supposed to be? Where are we supposed to live? What kind of work are we supposed to do? I can tell you that wherever you are, that is where God has called you to be. You are exactly where God wants you to be. The real question is, are you doing what God wants you to do? Or are you doing what you want to do? God calls Christians. He calls you to your vocation. He has called some to be mothers and fathers. He calls some to ministry. He calls you to serve. And he calls you to love your neighbor. Has God called you to be an adulterer? Has God called you to be an idolater, consumed with material things? Has God called you to live to self? Or has God called you to die to self? Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, 
but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Don't let sin reign. Don't let it define who you are. Do not let it have control. Do not let it separate you from your relationship with your Heavenly Father. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin will not reign. Even when you sin, you can still beg pardon from the one who has freed you from its bondage. You should not want to return to it. You should not want to live in it. You must turn from it. Repent of it. Find your life in Christ and the freedom that he has provided. This chapter is so good, we're going to go ahead and read the rest of it. Starting in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you were present, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? It reads, we started this sermon talking about how we are great sinners. I wanted to make the point that our sins are great in the sense that there is such an offense to a holy God and that we are great at sinning better than we know. None of us can be aware of how much we have offended our Creator. And we shouldn't believe that our sins are great in the sense that our sins are something to enjoy, that our sins are something to be proud of, that our sins are something to brag about to others. How wrong is it to live in the stories of past sins as if we are proud of what we have done, as if we are proud of the reasons that Christ was slain? 1 Corinthians 6 tells us you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And Romans 8, 11 through 14 reads, If the Spirit of Him 
who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We were bought with price. We are debtors, not to the flesh. We don't pay the flesh. We owe a debt to our Heavenly Father. One we can never repay. But still our obedience is commanded. Not because of what we stand to gain, but because of our relationship to our God. Because of our relationship to our Savior, because of our relationship to our Creator, to the one who is just and the justifier. Christian, you won't become sinless. We've read a lot from Romans. Why not one more? Um, chapter 7, I'll read from verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. You won't become sinless. Even the Apostle Paul lets us know here about the struggles everyone will have. But as long as you and I are in this world and these bodies that grow old and decay with these minds that are prone to wander, prone to leave, we will sin. But we must have a desire to turn from that sin, to repent, to give our time and our energy to the body of Christ. To serve, to be servants, to be good stewards of our time. And of our relationships. Love your family. Proclaim the gospel to them. Pray for them. Pray with them. Fellowship with the saints. Talk about Jesus and what he has done for you. God knows who are we. He has given us the ordinary means of grace. One day in seven to hear his word, to be reminded, because we need that. His spirit, the comforter, comes to us. We must give ourselves to prayer, to the word preached, read the word. These perpetual reminders of his grace is the only way you will have success. trying to remain obedient 
as we should to our Father. My last reading, two verses out of Romans 12. Verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's go to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we ask for conviction. We ask that you forgive us for presuming upon your grace. We ask that you grow in us a desire to read your word, to study, to wrestle with understanding so that it may grow within us. And then we ask for a desire to be bold enough to share it with our neighbor, to lead our families. And we ask for the strength that we must have when all that's around is ourselves and our minds and there is a sin that must be killed. We ask that you bring these thoughts, these concepts to mind. And not that we just dwell on our state, but that we, we, we spend as much time looking at the gift of salvation, at the wonderful things Christ has done, how you have not left us, but more than that, have brought us in. All the way my Savior leads me. I cannot do it on my own. We cannot do it on your own. We need your grace. Christ, I'm your grace. Amen.